Today's reading is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 20, verses 20 to 34. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and, kneeling down, asked a favor of him. What is it you want, he asked. She said, Grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, You will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my Father. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. As Jesus and his disciples were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. Two blind men were sitting by the roadside, and when they heard that Jesus was going by, they shouted, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. The crowd rebuked them and told them to be quiet, but they shouted all the louder, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. Jesus stopped and called them. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. Lord, they answered, we want our sight. Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes. Immediately they received their sight and followed him. This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. So many, many years ago, when I was in high school, I wrestled. I wrestled all four years of high school. I wasn't very good at it, but I stuck at it. Did it for four years. My freshman year, I wrestled a 126 weight class, um, believe it or not. And I was junior varsity, and the boy who was ahead of me in varsity spot was a senior, and he was one of our best wrestlers. And about four or five matches into the season, uh, the coach came to me the night before a match, and he said that the, the varsity guy was injured and that I was going to have to wrestle varsity the next day. And I enjoyed that statement for about two seconds because the next thing out of his mouth was, and the person you're going to be wrestling is from the other school, and he named the person, and I'd heard of him. The year before, he had placed in the top three in the state in his weight class, and he was he was a senior this year and was expected to take first that year. Um, I would have had a hard time beating anybody, but I, I knew this kid was going to kill me. So it was a pretty stressful night. So I didn't sleep real well that night, thinking about the embarrassment I was going to face the next day. But I, I got to admit, in the midst of all that fear, there was this little thought that just kind of kept running through my mind. What if, what if somehow I beat that kid? What if by some miracle I actually beat that kid? He makes a bad move and gets pinned, you know? Man, 
Would my life change if that could happen tomorrow? That little fantasy, you know, took seed and it just kind of started growing. What if that would happen? Girls would want to go out with me. Guys would admire me. The sun would shine a little brighter on me. Life would be really good if I could beat that kid tomorrow. That thought didn't last for very long. And there's no need to go into what happened in that match. But suffice to say, girls weren't lining up to date me afterwards. There is that thought in us, isn't there? That, that to be first, to win, to accomplish above others, to be the one who's in a place of prominence and recognition, that that's where life's to be found. The good life is there. If you can be ahead of others somehow, stand out somehow, be a little better, the good things will come to you if you can be up there. It must have been strange for the people to hear from Jesus again and again who lived in a world just like ours, where that philosophy is just in every corner of our world. It must have been strange for them to hear from him again and again these words. The last will be first, and the first will be last. Tell us again and again, in the kingdom of heaven, everything's turned upside down. Everything's different than the way it works in this world. The, the text that you just saw read, just heard read, um, doesn't stand alone. It's really in a series of stories that Matthew has kind of tied together under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that I think have a common theme, a thread that runs through all of them and kind of binds them together. So a little earlier, you'll see the story of these little children that were brought to Jesus. The people brought them to Jesus so that he would lay hands on them and pray for them. And his disciples step up and try to shoo the children away. I'm not sure they were saying that we don't care about kids, but I think what they're saying is, again, they're not, they're not really front-of-the-line people. They're not the people that are most important. And Jesus needs to be putting his attention on those that are most important, right? It's not necessarily they're bad, but there are more important things to be doing and more important people to be dealing with. And that story ends with Jesus saying these words, The kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. It's turned upside down. The ones you think are kind of somehow lower level, they're actually the ones that the kingdom of heaven is all about. Next story is the story of the rich young man. So this rich young man comes to Jesus and he wants to know what he must do to have eternal life. And he tells him, obey the commandments. He says, I've done that. I do that, which is a pretty bold statement, but I'm doing that. And he says, well, then, then give away everything you sell, everything you own and, and give the proceeds from that to feed the poor. And we're told that he walks away sad because he was a man of great wealth. And, and that story, as he goes on and talks to his disciples, ends with these words. Many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. Everything's turned upside down. Then we have the parable of the workers in the vineyard. The parable of the workers in the vineyard is where this, this uh, owner of a vineyard goes out early in the morning. And he hires people to work in his vineyard. And he tells them you're going to get a certain wage for a day's work. And then through the day, he needs more workers, and he keeps going out and inviting more workers in. So every few hours, he goes out and invites a few more in, a few more in. Till this last group, with only an hour left to work, he invites them in to work. And then at the end of the day, he hands out their wages, and every one of them get exactly the same wage. Now, how would you feel? Doesn't seem fair, right? And instead of noticing the, the generosity of the master, the owner of the vineyard, instead all they notice is what seems to them to be injustice. And that story ends with these words. 
The last will be first, and the first will be last. And then the last event that that Matthew tells about right before the passage we're going to look at today is where Jesus pulls his disciples together and he begins telling them about what's going to come, what is just ahead for him. And he tells them about the fact that he is going to be mocked and he's going to be flogged and he's going to be crucified. And then after three days, he's going to be raised again to new life. And he tells them that event is coming. So those are all kind of together leading up to this passage. And a theme that I think is in there running all through it is when the kingdom of, that in the kingdom of heaven, in the kingdom of God, everything is different. The way this world works is not the way the kingdom of heaven works. It's not the operating principles upon which it's built. Here we think getting ahead, being first, being recognized, being admired, being the one who stands out above others somehow, doing something that makes you a little better, that gets you more. Life will be better. Jesus instead describes the kingdom of heaven as a place where instead the best The greatest are those who understand what it is to lift the other up, what it is to make the other more, what it is to see the one who's being stepped over and pay attention and invite them in, what it is to let someone go ahead. That's greatness in the kingdom of heaven. It's a whole different system. David Wenham uh, wrote an excellent book on the parables. He says this about this parable of the workers in the vineyard. The revolution of God is a leveling revolution. Not, however, a negative leveling revolution, bringing everyone down, but a positively leveling revolution in which God's amazing generosity welcomes even latecomers into the work of the revolution and gives them the full day's wage. It was shocking to those other workers because that's just not the way of our world. It's not what we've been taught. It's not what we see. This doesn't seem fair. But in the kingdom of heaven, it's about saying what you received is good. And we want everyone else to receive it. We want anyone who's being left out to be included. We want them to be lifted up. In the kingdom of heaven, what matters more than anything else is not to bring all of us down. It's to lift all of us up. It's to stand shoulder to shoulder because the central principle in the kingdom of heaven is love. And we love better those who stand shoulder to shoulder with us. We experience their love better. We give them love better. That's what the kingdom of heaven is about. Lift us all up. Stand side by side, shoulder by shoulder. Not really the way of the world, though. And one thing that struck me as I read through this passage was this is a hard thing to hold on to. This is a hard thing to learn. It's a hard thing to live by. As soon as I think I grabbed hold of it, it already starts fading away. It already starts dissipating and going out of my hand again. It is so hard. Jesus teaches it again and again and reminds them and shows them and teaches them in so many ways And yet they have a hard time holding on to it, just like we do. Because then we come to today's text. Today's text in chapter 20 and verse 20. So the story starts where James and John, the apostle James and John, mother comes to Jesus and has a request for Jesus. And the request is, you know, I kind of like my two sons. She's doing what moms do. You know, she wants good for her sons. And she comes to Jesus and says, you know, Jesus, when you're in charge, when you're ruling over everything, you know, there's going to be some important places there. And would you consider putting my sons in those important places? What this mom's doing is she's calling dibs. You know the phrase? She's calling dibs on the seat beside Jesus. 
the one to his right and his left, saying, I asked for him first, and if you ask for him first, you get him, right? I was looking up the etymology of that phrase, calling dibs, trying to think, where did that thing come from? Whoever thought of that? It's interesting when you look at the etymology, there are a lot of ideas behind it. Nobody's really quite sure, so they've come up with all kinds of explanations of it. But the thing that I found that was interesting when I got looking for it was how many other languages have a very similar phrase. How many places in the world where we have the same idea? You call it first, you get it. The first gets the rewards, right? To the victor goes the spoils. It's an idea that's just such a human idea. It's such a this world idea. And that's what she's doing. She's saying, I want, I want my sons to have a really important place because I love my sons and I want my sons to have a good life. And that's how they'll have a good life. And Jesus says, do you know what you're asking? You don't know what you're saying. Not necessarily it's bad to want good for your sons. But do you understand what, what that greatness in the kingdom of heaven is going to cost them? Do you understand what I've just told you? Mocked, flogged, crucified. That's the path the greatest in the kingdom of heaven is walking. Do you understand that? And it's clear that James and John didn't get it, who've been hearing all these stories. The mom didn't really get this, right? Really what she's saying is Jesus, and I'm sure what she probably expected, as many did, Jesus, when, when you get to Jerusalem and you drive those Romans out of Israel and you sit on your rightful throne, I, I'd like my sons to be vice president and speaker of the house. That would be a nice thing, right? He's saying, do you really understand what you're saying? Because those who will have those positions are those who've sacrificed much and given much and lifted the other up and cared for the other. They're not there to be seen. They've been placed there by the Father, not by themselves. He's placed them there because they weren't about getting there. They were about the other. That's the kingdom of heaven. Do you understand? Do you get it? Theologian Michael Green writes this. Greatness in the world is determined by status, in the kingdom by function. In the world, greatness is shown by ruling, in the kingdom by serving. In the world's eyes, the greater are those who can order others about. In the kingdom, they are those who endure hard times and injustice without complaint. So these disciples have been hearing this lesson again and again and again and see it modeled in Jesus' life and in his actions. They need to be taught again because what are they doing as they hear this going on? They're worried somebody else might get the spot they want, right? They're upset because they didn't call dibs, because they didn't get the spot first. And so Jesus pulls all of his disciples together and he teaches them again. This time very clearly. He, he makes the point, drives the principle home. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. You know in the world, apart from God, as they turn their back on God, you know how it works in this world. In this world, those with the most power, those with the highest position, those who step over others and get to be on top, they're the ones that others serve. They're the ones that get. They're the ones who receive. You know that's the way of this world. And then I love these four words. Not so with you. I had a friend when I was in Seattle. He worked with street kids in Seattle. And he had tattoos up both arms. He was an artist and he had designed each of his tattoos and had them on both arms. And he once told me that before he would actually get the tattoo, he would design it, draw it up, and then he'd put it in a file. And he said a year later, if he still thought that was a good idea, then he'd get that tattoo. So that was his system. I remember telling him, yeah, I'm going to need a lot more in a year, you know. 
Because there are a lot of things that I thought for a long time were a good idea that I am so glad I'm not stuck with for the rest of my life, you know. There aren't many things I want to tattoo on my body and be stuck with forever. But when I read these words the other day, not so with you, I thought, I might be willing to tattoo that on my body. Those four words I might be willing to have there that I have to look at for the rest of my life. Not so with you. And I think if I was going to get the tattoo, I'd tattoo it right on the back of my thumb. I think that's where I'd put it. So that every time that I'm doing my work, that I'm writing or typing or doing something, and I see my hand, I'm reminded the way we're to do our work and the purpose of our work and why we work is about something different than the world. Not so with you. That every time I reach in my wallet and pull out some money that I would see, not so with you. How you spend your money and what money is about and what riches and blessings are about in this world are about something different in the kingdom of heaven than the philosophy of this world. Not so with you. That every time I'm helping someone and coming alongside someone that I would see those words. Not so with you. Everything's different in the kingdom of heaven. What's different is it's not about getting ahead. It's about lifting up and standing side by side. That's the kingdom of heaven. And he goes on and explains, here is what you are to be about. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the kingdom of heaven way. This is what you're to be about. And that is hard to hold on to and remember. The moment I think I got it, I'm right back into the old way again. It's so easy to slide back there. And again, you see that because Jesus can... I don't think Jesus just teaches. Jesus lives what is true in the kingdom of heaven. So every moment he lives, every time he's with them, every time he speaks, he's teaching them the kingdom of heaven way. And we see right after this, the next story that Matthew wants to tell us is not only what he just said and so directly said, but now look at how he lives it again. So they begin leaving Jericho. I'm told Jericho is a pretty wealthy city. So they're heading out of Jericho on this road that leads to Jerusalem heading to Jerusalem for the Passover, and again, those events that we all know are ahead for Jesus. And he's walking on that road, and I'm told it's actually a kind of treacherous road because, again, wealthy people from Jericho making their way to Jerusalem. It was a great place for robbers to hang out and hide and get people. It was also a difficult walk. It's the ascension. It's walking up to Jerusalem, so it's a hard walk. So he's heading out of town. He's going on this difficult walk. We know what's ahead for Jesus. We know what's just before him. Mocking, flogging, crucifixion are coming. And, and as he leaves, a crowd is following him and around him, as so often happens. And we know that those people that come around him, some are faithful followers, some are curious, some are people who just wanted something from him. So he's got all these people who want from him around him, following him. If there's any time you'd want to say to Jesus, Jesus, it's okay right now. Take a break. Take care of yourself. Worry about you for a little while, right? I mean, look what's ahead of you. Look what you're going to. Look at the difficult path you're on. It's okay to stop and take care of yourself a little bit. And as this crowd walks by, two blind men are sitting on the side of the road, probably sitting there hoping for charitable donations of those many people who are making their way to Jerusalem. As he walks by, somehow they hear that this is Jesus, and they begin calling out to him. They've been shouting to him, Lord, have mercy on us. And the people immediately start telling them to shut up and be quiet. Why? Maybe you matter. You just don't matter as much as the rest of us. You're the people that need to be at the back of the line. You're not quite up here with us. So shut up. And they don't shut up. They just yell all the louder. 
Lord, have mercy on us. And what's Jesus do? At a time when you go, it just makes, it's, it's acceptable, it's okay, take care of you. He stops and he turns and he sees them and he responds to their need. Matter of fact, what Matthew tells us was that he had compassion upon them. He just didn't see them, he, he had compassion on them. I think it would be really easy. I, I, I've done it. I think it's really easy to do. Uh, to take this teaching about service and about caring for others and about putting yourself second and lifting the other up, putting the focus on the other, and to say, okay, I get it. In the kingdom of heaven, that's the stuff that matters. And so if I want to get, if I want to be great in the kingdom of heaven and I want to get recognition and I want to be thought of well and admired and want people to think I'm great, then I need to get my service badge, right? I need to go out and do some service stuff so that I can be at a place of prominence again and be recognized and be thought well of. So let's all go out and get our service badge. But listen to Jesus' words and look at his actions. I think they say something else. When he's telling them, who are you supposed to be? What's your service supposed to look like? It's like that of a servant or a slave. We use those terms so often without thought about what that really meant. Like a servant or a slave. When the slave served, did the slave get recognition? Did they get great rewards for their service? Did everybody go, wow, how remarkable you are, you did that? Serve like them. Be someone who just simply sees the needs of others and meets it, lifts them up. Stand, seek to lift them to a place where you stand with them. It's not about getting your service badge or about proving how great you are. And the way Jesus served wasn't just about saying, well, I, I need my service badge, so you're a good person to do it with, so I'll go do it. Scripture tells us he had compassion on them. The word compassion there comes from a word that, that means you're your inner body parts, like your intestines. That's what the word means. The idea there is kind of what we talk about when we talk about empathy. It's something where I, I feel deep within me for you. In some ways, I feel a little bit of what you're feeling. That when I see your sadness, sadness comes in me. Deep within me, I feel it. When you're hurting, I hurt because you hurt. When you're happy, I'm happy because you're happy. Compassion is I feel deep within me for you. And with you. Jesus looks at these two men who others would say are insignificant, maybe matter, just not as much as. And instead of saying, yeah, we got to deal with the important people and the important things, Jesus stops and he looks at them and he responds to them, has compassion upon them. I, I have the privilege here of serving with a group of people called the Community Outreach Team. And the Community Outreach Team in our church is a group of people that get together monthly. And we try and plan some of the outreach events that you'll hear of through the year where we do service projects in the community. One of the other things we do is um, we take the funds that you all give through the year and we decide how to help organizations and ministries in the community with part of those funds. So today on every communion Sunday when you leave and we take up an offering at the back after the service, a portion of those funds go to the deacons that help people in need within our church and a portion of those funds go to the community outreach team which help people in need in our larger community. So I'm on this group that, that is thinking about how do we do that better in the community. And every month when we get together, I make up an agenda for our meeting, and at the bottom of the agenda, I have these five value statements that I include on every agenda. And they're value statements that we came up with a few years ago, the things that we want to guide our decisions and our thoughts 
you know, as we meet together. I, I want to read to you two of those value statements. The first is identify whether the needs of those being served are for relief, rehabilitation, or development, and respond appropriately to those needs. One of the things we want to remind ourselves as we're making decisions is we don't just serve in the way we want to serve. We don't just do the things we enjoy doing or make us feel good about doing. We want to actually look at the person in front of us or the group of people in front of us and say, what do you actually need? Even if we're not that good at it, even if we're not sure we have the best resources for it, your need comes first. And we want to be responsive to the need, not just responsive to our desire to feel good about giving, right? The, the next value, though, I think overlaps in some ways with it. It says, serve in ways that honor the dignity and giftedness of those being served and encourage their active participation in the process of improving their own situation. When we serve, we want to look at the person in front of us and say, you are a full person just like me, a thinking person, a choosing person, a person who has resources and gifts that God has given you just like me, no different than me. You're not less than me in any way. We are people that both long to be treated with dignity and respect. And we want to speak into those needs and address those needs in a way that don't forget that. You have as much to give me as I have to give you. We may have different needs right now, but we're all people with something to give. And we're all people who have need. They just may look different right now. We want to remember that as we make choices about how to serve. When I look at Jesus, even in this little brief interlude, how he serves these two, brain, these two blind men, it strikes me that the way he does it, I think, is about these values. I think these are the kind of values. I think these are good values when I look at how he serves. When he looks at them, he can snap his finger and they see again. He doesn't. He asks them, what do, you, what do you want me to do for you? He lets them speak into the situation. And then scripture says he had compassion on them. He didn't just act and get them out of the way. He, he saw them, knew them well enough to deeply care for them. And then he responded to their needs. Now, he can do that a lot quicker than we can do that, right? But I still think it's a model of how we're supposed to be serving. Matthew says three, three more times, um, he tells about this phrase, had compassion on them. Seems to be a normal way that Jesus responded to others. He didn't just do what they needed. He, he wanted to hear what they needed. He had compassion on them. And then he acted, as we should. When Jesus served, one of the things that struck me was Jesus served in a way that didn't objectify others, didn't turn them into a project to make himself feel better. He saw them fully as the people they were. When you, when you hear the story, for instance, of the woman of the well, what a great story, isn't it? In this case, a woman who, who really was, you know, someone who morally wasn't doing the right thing. This was a woman that had questionable moral character. And yet with her, when Jesus approached her, the thing that shocked her, the thing that's surprising in the story is the respect with which he treated her, the way he spoke. It surprised her. Why would a holy man even be talking to me, be speaking to me this way, interact? Why would you want to drink from my drinking utensil? Of course you wouldn't do that. Jesus sought to stand shoulder to shoulder with her, face to face with her, as he met her need, treated her with respect and kindness, and he stepped into her life and he served her. It's the model for how we're to serve. He doesn't objectify. I read recently uh, philosopher Marcia Nussbaum, she, she has a list of things that are suggestions about we objectify people when we do these things, when we treat them in this way. And I thought it was a great list. She says we objectify people if they're treated as a tool for another's purpose. 
If you're just there for me to accomplish something, I forgot to see who you really are. We objectify when they're treated as if lacking in agency or self-determination. If I forget that you're a thinking, choosing person just like I am, you become less human to me. Treated as if owned by another. Treated as if interchangeable. So if I see you and I think, well, I know you because I know people of that race, or I know people of that ethnicity, or I know people of that gender, or I know what poor people are like, and you're one of them, so I know what you're like. I know what your needs are. I know who you are. Treat people as if they're interchangeable, as if everyone in this group, subgroup that I've identified are all the same. You're not a unique human being with unique gifts and unique personality and unique hurts to just lump you together with others. That's to objectify. Treat it as if permissible to damage or destroy and treat it as if no, no need for concern for their feelings and experiences. Yet look at the example of Jesus. Jesus saw them. He heard them. He had compassion upon them. He reached out and physically touched them and he acted for their good. He had compassion on them. He didn't objectify them. That's the way of the kingdom. That's the way Jesus is calling us to. It's a way that love is at the very center of everything. Love is what matters. I don't think Jesus is calling us to something to say, I want you to have less of a life so that others might have more. I think Jesus is calling us this way of life because he knows our design. He knows the real life we're designed for and made for is a life that's built on love and centered on love. That when we love others, when we lift them up and stand with them, that we might love each other better. We know the life that we truly are designed for and meant for. That's life. Anything other than that is less than what we're meant for. One of the reasons um, I bring up the community outreach team is because I want you to think about some of the things we put before you. I want you to think about some of the events and some of the um, organizations and ministries that we partner with as a church. I want you to be involved with them. And this really isn't just a sales pitch because I want you to understand why we do this. We do not believe that when we put things before you for service and ministry in our community, they're the only way you should be doing that. We believe this is the way of the kingdom. This is a way of life. This ought to be just how we are and how we live, right? So it's not I go do a project and it's done. This is just who we should be. We should be people who see others who are down, who are needy, who are oppressed, who are forgotten, who are pushed aside, and we want to lift them up and include them and invite them in, that's who we ought to be. But we also know this is something that is hard to hold on to. There are thousands of voices around us constantly telling us otherwise. You know what really matters? You know what? If I really care about you, you know what I want for you? I want you to get ahead. I want you to step up over. I want you to stand out. I want you to be better. That's what it means to care about you, right? Jesus says, no. This thing is so hard to hold on to and so hard to remember. Is love is at the very top of the list. It's the most important thing. It's what we're made for. And as soon as I grab onto it, I start forgetting it again and going right back to building me up and holding on to my position and working for myself. It's hard to do. So as a church, we want to put before you often reminders We ought to do what Scripture tells us to do, spur one another on to love and to good deeds, right? We ought to come together all the time to say, remember, remember, remember. Do this together. Experience it. Act on it because this is is the way of the kingdom. And it's hard for us to live and hard for us to remember. We need all the help we can get. 
So one of the ways we do that as a church is we, we partner with a few organizations. There's a lot of good organizations and ministries in our community that we could partner with. Part of why we do that is because we think, you know, honestly, they're the people who are face-to-face more. We want to go through them doing this work because they're face-to-face with the people they're serving. So we want to support that work. And so we have some organizations we work with. And again, many other good ones, we've chosen to focus on these. Habitat for Humanity. Um, You know, we're doing this house build. We're trying to raise $10,000 to help someone build a home. Uh, We've already raised about half of that, I think. And our hope is we not only raise the funds to go towards the building of that home, but then we actually participate in the work of helping to build that home. Why? Because we want those who who don't have a home they can call their own to experience what many of us here experience. Home is more than just a building to us, right? It's a place where families gather. It's a place that feels I can give safety and security to my kids. It's a place that we can call our own and we can know you can always come back to no matter how far you go away. We, we want to help people have that thing called home, a house. And we know you don't have to own it to be that, but we know owning it's a wonderful blessing. We want to lift others up who are in a place where they just can't do that and say, we want to help you do that. We want to join with you in pursuing that good goal and stand shoulder to shoulder with you in that. Crisis Pregnancy Center, not only caring for the unborn child who can't help itself, but also caring for those mothers who often are pushed aside and forgotten and not thought of. We want to say we want to stand shoulder to shoulder with people who are shoulder to shoulder with you. Community Garden, Mother Hubbard Cupboard. So the little garden out in the corner, the people that started that started that because of a real concern to have fresh food and organically grown food to be able to give to those in need. Because many times the food that's the cheapest food isn't the healthiest food, right? And Mother Hubbard's Cupboard tries to provide good food, the same kind of food that the parents here want for their kids. We want to lift others up and say, you get to have that same food. Maybe you can't shop at some of the same places. We might shop to get it. But we want it to be available to you and stand shoulder to shoulder. Garden Villa Nursing Home, a, a group that is often pushed aside and forgotten, right? Older people in our community oftentimes are, you get to a certain age, you're not productive anymore. You don't have as much to offer. And now we push you aside and we forget you. We don't want that to be the case. We want to go to them and treat them as people of dignity and value, have something to offer us. And if you've ever gone to one of the ministries at Garden Villa Nursing Home, you will find out they have something to offer us as much as we do them. New Song Mission, Children's Home. It's home for kids who oftentimes have been forgotten, whose parents, for whatever reason, have been removed from the picture. Kids who don't have what what all kids we want to have. Parents who are with them and fight for them and a home they can call their own and a good education and all those things that we all want for our kids. We want to support a place that's trying to provide that for kids that don't have it, to lift them up and level. Arlington Good News Club is the final one. It's a ministry here where a group of people, remarkable people, go to Arlington Elementary School during the school year and they provide this after-school club and just do a remarkable job of not only teaching the gospel to children, but a loving all over them. Of taking kids, sometimes there isn't somebody right now to run home to right after school. But you have a safe place, a caring place, a loving place to come to and to be, to be treated as if you matter, to lift you up. Those aren't the only places we do it. But we want a regular reminder in our midst that we do together sometimes Say, this thing that's so hard to hold on to, pull it back again and again and again. Spur one another on to love and good deeds because that's the way of the kingdom. Let's make it a habit.
In your name. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are so thankful um, that we serve a God who loves us um, at our lowest places, who has come to us to lift us up, who has sacrificed so much. Lord, how thankful we are for all that you've done for us. In your blessed name, amen.